Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I drink Dr. Pepper and I'm proud. I'm part of an original crowd. And if you look around these days, it seems to be a Dr. Pepper craze. I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, we're a pepper. Wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper. If you drink Dr. Pepper, you're a pepper too. Be a pepper. Drink. I'd forgotten about the modulation there. Uh, so that was, I don't know whether you people know that or not, but David Naughton, who starred in American Werewolf in London, um, and is from he, right where I'm sitting. Not He's not from the studio. He didn't grow up here. Uh, but he went to Conrad High School in West Hartford and all that kind of stuff. James Naughton is his brother. So anyway, the point of playing that, of course, is that in the January 6th hearings uh, earlier this week, we saw, um, it was video of Sidney Powell who was giving testimony, and then in order to quench the the fires uh, that Lucifer has placed inside Sidney Powell's body, she had to take this enormous slug of Diet Dr. Pepper, and it just caused all kinds of problems. Uh, and, <laughs> and in addition to that, so I just sort of tuned into all this. So the real Dr. Pepper Twitter account was in the middle of rolling out this kind of new thing. Russell from Brookfield. Just wait a second. I'm going to get right to you. By the way, it's um, all phone calls today. Ask or tell me anything. Ask or tell me anything. 888-720-WNPR. 888-720-9677. So the Dr. Pepper people, unaware that a minion of Satan was going to be drinking their product on multiple television stations in a very much-watched public hearing, they were actually they're actually trying to roll out this one of those sort of limited time products is called Dark Berry uh Dr Pepper which <laughs> which sounds I mean like I don't like Dr Pepper anyway I don't even drink soda that much but if I did drink soda Dr Pepper would be one of the last things I would think about drinking and and, and then they have these limited time things and I've never kind of understood why you do something like that. Or, or let me put it th- a different way. Obviously, creating an artificial scarcity. You know, we're only going to have this kind of sneaker around for uh, X number of days. I get that. But, you know, like if you have to make <laughs> big, huge vats or, or whatever, however you make Dr. Pepper dark berry, you know, and with no intention of carrying the product forward, I think one thing that tells me is it's not very good. Even by Dr. Pepper standards, it's probably not very good. Because otherwise, why wouldn't they, you know, just keep it going? So, um, and then the social media account for they hired Barry Manilow. Follow me here for this new dark berry flavor. I don't know. They hired the whitest berry they could possibly find uh, for their new dark berry. So, Bar- so, so Barry Manilow is the official spokesperson for this limited run Dr Pepper dark uh, dark berry formulation. And then, like on their Twitter account, they only fo- they unfollowed everybody who wasn't named Barry. So everybody else in the world who was following them on Twitter got unfollowed, and they only are following, you know, Barry Zito and people, <laughs> people like that. And so they're in the middle of this really exciting thing for them, you know, that they put some work into. 
And what happens? They just they get sucked into a completely different news reality. All right. Anyway, that's what I have to say. Now we're going to go to the phone calls. There are lots of them. I'm really looking forward to this first one. I think it's a very interesting topic. Uh, here is Russell from Brookfield. Hi, Russell. Hey, uh, Colin. Uh, by the way, could it be worse than Diet RC Cola? There, there have been some bad ones. There are, there are a lot anyway. of bad sodas out there. There's no question about that. Yeah. We could do a whole show yeah. about bad sodas, and we probably will someday. Well, I'm, I'm, I won't suck into that now, no pun intended. Anyway, here's, here's one I'm going to throw your way, kind of a hot potato maybe. Is there a line to be drawn is, or seen? Uh, is there competition? Is there tension between cultural appropriation and, and diversity, uh, diversifying certain things? I'm thinking specifically, uh, to, to get an example here, the current cast of Richard III, at the public theater mm-hmm. this summer. You familiar with that one? Yeah, yeah. So it's got the woman who played Michonne in The Walking Dead. I've never learned how to pronounce her last name correctly, although she was actually almost on this show because she'd written a play that was being— she's also a playwright. She'd written a play that was being wow. done at Yale Rep, and she got stuck in a snowstorm on a train. She was coming to be interviewed on our show, so I was kind of bad about that. But, yes, she um, she is a well, she's a black woman. I believe she's actually— from Africa, I think she's. Um, uh, I think that might be right. Either that or her parents are from Africa. But anyway, yeah, she's playing Richard the Third. Continue. Yeah. Well, and the whole cast is is uh, well um, diversified for sure. And but I, I want to know when is there a time when that diversity swaps over into or competes with cultural appropriation? I mean, when I think of Richard the Third, I mean that is just such a the distinguished, a traditional. Maybe that's the wrong word to use, but identifiable white male tyrant. And um, I, I, I mean, I, I understand diversity, but is is that is that could that be cultural appropriation as people talk about it now? How do, how do you reconcile those two? Well, first of all, I think cultural appropriation tends to be it tends to sort of punch downward, right? It's sort of the the yeah. the theoretical ruling class is grabbing stuff that doesn't really belong to them and making yeah. it their own. So you know, you go and you buy a Navajo Dreamcatcher or something, and you you know display it prominently. I, I it's, it's that's a bad example. <laughs> the first thing that popped into my head, but it's a bad example. But okay, we so we agree that's what's that's what cultural appropriation is. So this yeah, seems so one question is just. It goes, it goes both ways. Yeah, I, I, I don't. First of all, I don't know the answer to that. I would say this. Let me just say this. You speak directly to the Richard the Third situation. You know, when I look at stuff like this, I think there's sort of two questions. What harm could it cause? Could it cause harm? And I think in this case, the answer is no. I mean, this is going to run at the Delacorte in Central Park and it's going to be over, you know, uh, and the world is going to be exactly the same as it was on opening night. So that's sort of number one. Number two, is it an interesting thing to do? You know, and first of all, Joe Papp, back in the days when this was kind of his thing, you know, he has a long history of this. Diane Venora, a Hartford native, uh, was his ha- uh, Hamlet in, in, also in Central Park uh, at a time. And that was, this is like in the early 1980s, I think. Um, and, and so, you know, and you could have said, 
said then, well, I mean, how can a woman be Hamlet? Well, you just you can do these things. You know, we we talked to a, uh, a writer yesterday who had turned Achilles into a trans person, a male to female trans person in a novel. Yeah. Um, you know, these things. It's not like I know they just dug up Richard the Third from a parking lot or something a few years ago. There was something right. They didn't find his body somewhere. It was like in a parking lot. Lester. Yeah. Lester, England. Yeah. So I mean, I understand that theoretically maybe he's a real person, but he's not that real person. He's not Shakespeare's real person. He never said now is the winter of our discontent in his real life. So these this is a work of imagination ultimately. It's not an attempt to, pr- to portray history or to correct historical inaccuracies. So as long as we know that, you know, and Danny can maybe bring some interesting quality to it, although I will note that the New York Times did not find this production particularly interesting. But, you know, so doing it for its own sake is, you know, is maybe not a great idea. But if you have some kind of idea with this, and I certainly feel like you could take Richard III, and I'm sure somebody has done this already. I mean, Richard III is primed to be transferred to a male leader in Africa, a Bokasa, an Idi Amin, uh, you know, that kind. I'm sure somebody's done that production already. So the only thing that's different here is the gender. I, I don't know. I, I just feel like, you know, throw these things up and see how they work. See if see if there's some interesting thing that can be mined there. There's going to be a thousand more productions of Richard III in the next five years all over the place, all over the world. Some will be good. Some will be bad. I don't know. I don't see any great harm here. How about you? Uh, no, and I'm I'm not against it. I just there's so much swirling around, uh, you know, diversifying these kind of things. At the same time, cultural appropriation. I just it seemed to me they're going to bump into each other. And how do you think about that? You you've helped me with that. So all right, I appreciate it. You may be the first person I've ever helped, at least on this radio show. <laughs> so um, so note that down, McPants. Somebody claims to have been helped. Um, all right, let's go back to not helping people. Here's Barbara from Simsbury. Hi, Barbara. You're on the air. Oh, I didn't do it. Something's wrong here. Something's wrong with the clicky-poo. The clicky-poo didn't happen. Let's try all over again. Hi, Barbara. Now you're on the air. Hey, how are you? Just fine. Oh, I just had a question to ask you. After I turned 70 a few years ago, I became more interested in history. And you had mentioned, you linked linked drinking the Kool-Aid with the Jonestown mass suicide. Mm -hmm. However... I was born in 48, so I was in the Miami area in the uh, 60s and 70s. And I believe that drinking the Kool-Aid meant using Kool-Aid as a vehicle for LSD. Interesting. First of all, that's very interesting. That could be a hallucination that you have had as a result of drinking Kool-Aid that was laced with LSD, and now you think it's called that? You know? I mean... No, no, I don't think so. I don't think so, because I did inhale. Right. But I did not take LSD that I'm aware of, because at that time I was a nursing student. Let me ask you another question, Barbara. How much Dr. Pepper have you had so far today? None. Okay. That's, I have that's had your story. One cup of coffee. All right. So I think this is a really interesting question. I, I rather than far from wanting to cast asparagus on it, I would be happy. I would be thrilled if that turned out to be true. First of all, because if it's the Jonestown thing, which I think most people think it is, you yeah, know, that's a pretty well, grim it's a thing. Different generation. Yeah, but it's also a pretty grim thing to be using. 
as a kind as a sort of trope, right? I mean, if it's really about the 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 killing of hundreds and hundreds of, of people, you know, and then you, yeah, you then you gruesome. then you and say, oh well, you know, to all of the yeah. the U.S. representatives and trying to kill people that way, and you know, uh, yeah. just running for their lives to the plane and all that other stuff. Right. I mean, so it shouldn't it shouldn't be used casually casually and people do use it casually. But if it turned out that it was about LSD in Miami in 1948, I'd be really happy about that. Oh, it wasn't 1948. It was that was when I was born. It was uh the the mid to late 60s to the 70s during the Vietnam War. You don't remember. You were so high. You don't know what year it was. So, um there is a teacher at Kingswood Oxford who knows about these things. <laughs> if if you wanted to reach out to the to him. Okay. Is, I don't I don't it, know if he's still there. Is it Rob Kife? I don't know cuz okay. I don't get the paper anymore, okay. but because I, he, uh, Rob Kaif and I took a lot of acid in the '60s together. So, no, that's that's not really true. I take that back. All right, Barbara, you have been a delight to talk to. A delight, and I do mean that. Uh, and I mean that would be really interesting if it meant something else. I wish I believed that because I mean I do feel like you know I'm always kind of uncomfortable. We say, and I've done it too. Oh, well, you'll, you know, Jonathan McNichol really drank the Kool Aid about the Yankees or something, which of course is a true statement, but. Um, you know, that's like you really shouldn't be using something that grim in a casual context. All right. So we've got, uh, well, let's do Jack and then we'll do Lori. All of you look so interesting, though. All, all the calls look interesting, which is a good sign. Uh, all right. Jack from Glastonbury, you have the floor. Thank you, Colin. It's such a pleasure to speak to you. My my question is not one you can answer probably, but you know, astrophysicists are praising the Weber telescope that's the Webb telescope that's doing yeah, the, great work. The Weber telescope is a grill in outer space, actually. They're just a, <laughs> you know, they're, the at the ISS they can make hamburgers and stuff like that. That's a whole different thing. Yeah, we're not talking about that, right? But you know, if I wonder if astrophysicists will find something beyond finding out the beginnings of the universe. If they may find one of those planets out there like ours, an exoplanet that may have had the same experience with climate change that we have, and whether they'll find out if we can find a solution through that for our problem. It, well, sense? they are going to be looking a lot about exoplanets. In fact, in the first year, that's a big part of the Webb uh, Telescope mission, mission, is to look at exoplanets, uh, look at atmospheric composition, stuff like that. Um, however, the, the thing that you're saying sounds a little bit too Star Trek-y for me. I mean, although we are actually discussing, <laughs> tomorrow on the nose, we are discussing, A, the Webb Telescope kind of as culture, um, and B, Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which is the latest iteration of Star Trek. But that's sort of what happens on Star Trek, right? They go to another planet. It turns right. out they had climate change. They bring a whale home or they bring a whale up there. I forget which direction the whale goes. And, you know, and I just I don't think it works out that neatly. I mean, you would have to find an exoplanet that was so close in atmospheric composition uh, and, and kind of geological history to our planet to have something to analogize with meaningfully that I just think that that's a, like a real needle in a haystack or something. But, you know. I agree. That's a good comment. Pe- Thank you. Yeah, people find needles in haystacks, you know, not very often because that's where the expression comes from. <laughs> people found needles in haystacks on a regular basis. We would have to say something else. Uh, we'd have to say 
finding a chiclet, a tic-tac in a, in a haystack. That's what would take over. All right. So let me go to Lori. And I'm enjoying these calls very much. I'm, I don't know if anybody else is having fun, but I am. Um, all right. Uh, here's Lori. And then we have to go to Robin because it, <laughs> it turns out we may be onto something. So, Lori, you have the floor. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So my, my thoughts are that the Janu- January 6th, uh, insurrection was yes, it was terrible, and people got hurt, and that's bad. You know, however, it wasn't really that big of a deal. And the reason, part of why I say this is that even watching the hearings, um, we heard just recently the, the one guy who used to um, work for the Oath Keepers say, "Yeah, the, what these guys want is civil war." They came to the event prepared. They had all of that artillery with them, but they didn't do it. They didn't. And and yes, the cops got beat up. And yes, that's terrible. But they didn't go in and shoot them all. You know, so to me, it's partly like, yeah, they're really all talk, no action. Basically, they went in and jumped up and down like gorillas, you know, shouting, oh, look, you know, and stomping on the, you know, in the, you know, where the legislators meet. What do you think? Well, I mean, there's, I mean, in a way, I think you're sort of setting the bar kind of high for a big deal, you know, like, so they didn't strangle Nancy Pelosi at her desk, so it's not a big deal. But I understand what you're saying also, which is that, and I think the reality is that there were people there. I mean, the testimony kind of bears that out. All, all The video bears it out. Bears it out um, and, and sort of all the reporting that we've had that goes into this bears out the idea. There were people there who were really, you know, kind of hell-bent on inflicting some kind of mayhem. I mean, they're coming in in that stack formation and their whole idea. And they, they, weren't, they weren't there on January 5th. They weren't there on January 7th. They were on there on the day that the votes were supposed to be certified. So, I mean, I don't think you can really say that there wasn't an intent to do something. And I think just the video of Mike Pence running down the stairs with the guy with a nuclear football right next to him, you know, to me, that looks like a big deal. The vice president's got to go down and hide in a garage so people don't get him and tear him limb from limb. I mean, I, I, you're right that there's two ways to look at it. It was a not a, not a big deal. It was never going to be a big deal. Or it wasn't a big deal because we got lucky in certain ways. Somebody turned Mitt Romney around, so he ran in the other direction. And people got to safety relatively quickly. You know, people hit, hid successfully in other places. But I, I'm not, I, you know. I guess I think that if they really were going to kill Nancy Pelosi and or hang Mike Pence, that they would have killed people in order to be able to do that. And because they didn't, you know, they're just all a bunch of blowhards. And and I think that that's how a lot of Republicans see it, and that's why they minimize it. So it's it's useful in that sense to look at it a little that way, just in order to, I don't know, just to have some kind of conversational point with people who – might see it differently. Yeah, you know? no, I, I'm, and I respect you for bringing it up that way and framing it that way. I mean, the other thing that I would say is this: this is an invasion of a of a very specific space at a very specific moment, and and you know whether they meant to inflict 
physical harm. I mean, yeah, first of all, you know, actually quite a number of the police officers uh, and other security personnel whose job it was to try to keep them out uh, suffered, you know, not not even just dying, but other people suffered severe injuries and, and quite a bit of psychological trauma just going through something that, that terrifying. An awful lot of people had to kind of put their bodies and their lives on the line to make sure that a group of legislators were safe, safe in, in doing a, a pretty important task. Now, what was their goal? Was it to pull Nancy Pelosi's arms and legs off? Maybe, maybe not. But at minimum, their goal was to physically intimidate by their physical Mm -hmm. presence a group of people who were certifying an election at a time when the election results had been cast unnecessarily into doubt. And, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe maybe I don't think they were thinking too clearly. I think you're right that they probably went in there with kind of almost no plan about what they were going to do, or at least a lot of them did. I think some of them had a pretty precise plan, but but, you know, even so, imagine legislators who are maybe teetering a little bit, wobbling a little bit, wondering what they should do on that particular day. And suddenly, you, you know, you've got the Ostrogoths pouring oh. in there. I, I don't think that we can, you know, entirely minimize that. But but I also but I respect the fact that you're sort of saying that, too. I mean, there's some portion of what you're saying that's true, which is, you know, if they were planning to really inflict a lot of violence, then they didn't plan very well. Uh, right. I, I, but they also may have been smarter than that and wanted to have plausible deniability. If they all went in there with AR-15s, you know, they'd all be, you know, a lot of them be sitting in the supermax right now facing the death penalty. So, you know, mm-hmm. it may have been that, too. It was like, how much violence can we engage in without getting in too much trouble? Um, but interesting, interesting point, interesting phone call. All right. We're going to take a break. But before that, just because it's, you know, it's cooking right now, it's cooking in front of us. The big sticky vat of Dr. Pepper is uh, cooking, but also uh, next to it is the vat of uh, LSD-infused Kool-Aid. So here's Robin in Franklin, Mushroom Town. <laughs> yes, I've done my share of those. Same with you. Um, <laughs> hi. Hi. I was born in 1960 and um, parents that had lots of hippie friends, and I can tell you that the Kool-Aid and Punch association with LSD was definitely present then, and I'm talking 68 through 70s. I did my first trip at 73, age 13, um, and I think the book Go Ask Alice also alludes to that, but I'm not sure. Well, somebody else pointed out Ken Kesey's uh, electric Kool-Aid acid test. Now, all of that can be true. All of that can be true. Get me Peter Sokolowski. Now, um, all of that can be true, and yet the specific idiom or trope that we're talking about here is that somebody from the Jones. Well, I don't. I'm not saying it's definitely from Jonestown. I just want to sort of say what the implication of it is. So we say somebody drank the Kool Aid. We kind of mean they joined a particularly extreme way of thinking, right? That they've sort of yeah. that they, they they drank the Kool Aid. So you know, so they're they're in this very different kind of extreme thought position. So to me, yeah. you know, that could be acid, but to me, it says Jonestown more than it says acid. But this. This is a really good debate. It's exactly what the format of this particular kind of episode is for. And, you know, perhaps we will make progress and perhaps we won't. But uh, I have another question. Yes. Could I ask? You may. You may. Have, have you ever had a psychic experience? It's an interesting question. Have I ever had a psychic experience? That's a very interesting question. Um, I think if I thought about this really long and hard, I could probably come up with some instances where 
you know, I mean, I think we all have sort of odd sensations, things that feel very, very acutely like deja vu or, uh, you know, very, dream. very acutely like premonitions that then become uh-huh. true. Uh, I'm not really sure that I have. Do I? Have you had a lot of psychic experiences? I've had a few and they've been remarkable. It's usually when somebody asks me something, I can't come up with them by myself. But I've also had a few premonition dreams that were very scary and came true and alarmed the people because I had warned them years before that this thing might happen. Um, but I, what I'd like is if you would think about it and try to see if you've had any and ask your friends and uh, Kion and and have a show about that and have people call in their <laughs> psychic experiences. All right. I don't think Kion would know whether I had a psychic experience or not. But And in fact, I have right now a sensation of Kion not knowing whether I have a have had a psychic experience. So sort of I have a sixth sense about that, that she doesn't know. All right, so we'll take a break. We'll come back after the proverbial this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. A sin for the river When you find good people A need for the giver When you find good people A wound with the trigger An epic for the gun When you find good people A victim for the pen When you find good people A villain for the hymn When you find good people There's hands to make good men Out of our wayward sons Come join This might be my new favorite song. I really, it's by Jessica Hoop. I really like Jessica Hoop anyway. Um, all right, so we're doing all calls here. Ask or tell me anything, 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. We have many calls, many calls. Uh, all right, so I don't know what McPants thinks I should do, but I feel like I should talk to Brandon from Torrington, inasmuch as Dr. Pepper was how the show began. So, uh, Brandon, you have the floor. Oh. 
Thank you, Colin. I, I've called a couple times, and I have to say, one, being a Southerner, Dr. Pepper is awesome. It's not as good as Coke, <laughs> but it's pretty good. It does make a better barbecue sauce. Oh, I bet it does. Yeah. Have you ever been it, to the Bellingrath really Mansion? Uh, the Bellingrath Mansion uh, in uh, Mobile, which is the mansion that was, I believe, built by the man who introduced Coke, Coca-Cola, to the South. So imagine how big that mansion is. Uh, so, but, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think Dr. Pepper is, it's kind of a Southern thing, right? It, it, it definitely is a Southern thing. And now I got to say, you know, my, my adopted mother is from Alabama. And I have never heard of what you're talking about, but I've been to the Cook Museum. So now I have to look up what you're talking about. Yeah, it's called Bellingrath Gardens or something like that. But, uh, ah, yeah. And it's in, it's in Mobile? It's in Mobile, yeah. That's my recollection, yeah. I've been there. I've been to, I've been to Mobile. I've never, I've never heard of it. Well, um, I don't know what to say, but it's there. I didn't hallucinate it. I did take a lot of acid with Carrie from Gales Ferry or whatever her name was. Yeah, I, I, I've been to the Cook Museum. I have not been to that museum in Mobile. So All right. Dr. Pepper is great. And then I will lay one more thing on you, which is totally random on cultural appropriation. So... My whole life, I've been told I had uh, Native American, Cherokee, whatever on me. And I did one of those uh, ancestry things. And apparently, because I'm adopted, so none of that stuff is right, I don't have any of that. So it's not that I was, you know, taking those things on there, but like dream catchers and things like that, I like those things. And so I had some of them. And now, sometimes I feel a little, I feel a little guilty about it you're like a, a, a fig cherokee i i don't know i think we need to calm down to a certain degree about this stuff obviously cultural appro- cultural appropriation can have some pretty ugly manifestations i think the rather innocent gravitation towards a dream catcher is not one of them uh and i would play a bad example on my part but i totally know what you're talking about too because i i was one of, i was fairly early on the 23 and me bandwagon we did a show about it and i wound up you know having them run my dna and it was like I was just so disappointed that I, I mean, I just am this pathetically predictable kind of, you know, kind of Irish, Anglo-Saxon. There was like nothing. There was nothing the tiniest bit interesting or funky. Uh, and it just, you know, and the only consolation I ever got is a little bit later it came out that I had kind of a high Neanderthal DNA count. So I'm kind of leaning on that. I'm kind of a Neanderthal activist at this point. Oh, yeah, I, I can I can see leaning on that. So I, I I was all Irish, Scottish, Swedish, basically North Irish, Scottish, North, with the tiniest, tiniest, you know, one percent African, which I think everybody is because you know that's how things work. But yeah, I was like, wow, that's that's not how I was told for my entire life. Yeah, but again, very you know, disappointing. You don't. You don't yeah, you don't know those things when you're not, you know, you're not biologically related to everything you know. Right. But think about how I feel about Neanderthal cultural appropriation. You know, just like, oh, yeah, you've got one of our hammers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> big deal. <You're laughs> you, don't, you didn't come by it honestly. My people made that stone tool, damn it. Uh, all right. So, oh, boy, where am I? Uh, what what should I do? I'm going to do – well, we have to do one of the – we have several calls that wanted to refute the argument that January 6th was maybe not such a big deal. So here's Jim from West Hartford. Let's get that done with. Hi, Jim. Hi, Jim. 
Uh, right, Colin. Uh, cultural appropriation, or as the French call it, culture. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I would uh, say this about um, that that lady's point. There's been um, there's been many more attempts at assassinating presidents than successful assassinations. You know, two or three times as many. Um, there there was a very famous uh, failed coup. That, you know, Mark said uh, history repeats itself first time as tragedy, second time as farce. Sometimes it's the other way around. The Munich Beer Hall push of Adolf Hitler, widely seen as a joke, not a joke uh, a few years later. You know, I, I, Jim, I had the same thought. I know who you are, by the way, but uh, I had the same thought. Yeah. Uh, and um, I, when I was talking to whatever her name was, uh, I was thinking, you know, I mean, if the bullet had missed Kennedy, it, this would still be a really big deal that somebody had a clean right. shot at JFK and somebody tried to do right. it. Somebody pulled the trigger and we got lucky that day. And I think it is sort of true That's that it just if you get lucky one day, that doesn't mean it wasn't a big deal. There were several attempts on FDR's life. Um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it doesn't mean that it's not serious. You have to take it seriously. Oh, well, and this is the first, yeah, this totally is the first agree. time this has happened in U.S. history. Yep. I, I don't know there's any, that there's any way that you can watch those videos and not think this was dangerous. This was, this could have been so much worse than it was. A lot of things kind of had to come together to first of all make it possible for it to be as bad as it was, but also to keep it from being even worse. A lot of things happened a certain way. So, um, okay, I'm gonna we keep the calls diverse. We keep moving them around here. We're gonna go to Mary in Hartford. Hi, Mary. Hi. So I'm telephoning to remind you that 2022 is an opportunity to celebrate Connecticut native Frederick Law Olmsted you know, who was instrumental in construction and revitalization of nature and cities, as well as the establishment of city, state, and national parks. Olmsted uh, is really an example of good governance and, and what brings us all together, that we're all uh, bodies of water um, in, in, in whatever skin color we have. And that Olmsted really offers guidance on to how to uh, address the climate and biodiversity crisis locally um, and neighborhood resiliency. 2022, um, it's a, we're not yet, you know, we're past the middle of the year, but there's still an opportunity to, for the state to connect um, to a national celebration. And also, this is the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act. Hmm. And Olmsted is born and buried in Hartford. So I'm wondering, how much homework have you been doing on Frederick Law Olmsted? And have you been to olmstednow.org or Olmstead200.org. Well, first of all, I mean, one of my most direct experiences, uh, as you know, Frederick Law Olmstead did all the landscaping, the beautiful landscaping at the Institute of Living, which is where I went after taking all that acid with one of the previous callers. Uh, so, you know, I, every day I would look at those trees and I would say, why are they purple? Uh, but I would also say they were very beautiful. He did a nice job. But for Frederick Law Olmsted, for people who don't know, everybody, everything, all, all of a lot of the really beautiful city parks that we love so much, not just here in the United States, but also if you ever go to Montreal, the Mont Royal Park, that's a Frederick Law Olmsted design as well. Um, and yeah, and I think it's a great point too that that green greenery cools off our cities, uh, and we, you know, we're getting worse and worse maybe at planning for all this, uh, and the cities are heating up, and yeah, he should be celebrated. I'm totally with Mary on that. All right, so uh, let's go to Joe, who's been waiting a long time. Uh, hi, Joe from Bethany. You're on the air. 
Hey, thanks for getting me on. Sure. Uh, I'm going to propose one of my two topics is uh, where do we think we're going to get all the electricity for the electric cars that are starting to be built? Well, I mean, you can you can develop. I mean, there already are solar chargers. You can use solar energy to charge them. It's the batteries uh, that I think are the more yeah. complicated question, right? I mean, it's sort of environmentally more complicated making a clean electric car battery. I haven't done a lot of reading about this lately, but my recollection of, of it is that's the stinky part. You, I mean, the biggest problem right now is we don't, we don't solar anywhere near enough in any regard. I've said this on these all-call shows. Every time I drive by a big, huge shopping center parking lot, the one that I drive by most probably is the one at Bishop's Corner with Whole Foods and all the other stuff. And I think, why isn't there just a whole bunch of solar? Why isn't there a solar array over this parking lot? First of all, providing shade for shade to the cars, keeping the snow off the cars during the winter. And it just, the space is there to collect solar energy. There's oh, so um, much space available. So we could, you could do that and you could be charging cars and have plenty of uh, energy to push back up along the grid if we did yeah, more of that. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I definitely agree. The point I'm making is and, and no politicians and no businesses seem to be factoring in the lead time you need to produce about twice as much electricity as we currently have and use. Um, I, I would, I mean, I haven't really looked specifically at this vis-a-vis electric cars, but I believe you. Well, I just did some math on a couple of websites. 15 gallons of gas equals 500 kilowatt hours. The average use in a home is 1,000 kilowatt hours a month. Mm-hmm. So if you took two uh, two fill your tanks per month, you double your electric usage if you had an electric car instead of a gas car. Yeah. I, well, I, I mean, think, you're ahead of me on this, so I don't know. are going to be producing twice as much electricity as fast as the uh, car companies want to produce Teslas. Yeah. Know? Well, feels a little back of the envelope right now, Joe, but I'll be happy to look into this uh, a little bit more. Uh, thanks for the call. I feel as though we should probably take our break right now. Then we can we can... We can gather our thoughts. Um, all right. So <laughs> the number, although we actually have a lot of people waiting to go on already, but the number, 888-720-WNPR, should you be unable to contain yourself? 888-720-9677. All right. So I'm going to do my usual thank yous here. One of them is to Kat Pastor. Uh, she is the technical producer of this show. One, another one is to Jonathan McPants. He's in there screening calls. He's got the nerves of a chopper pilot doing that. He just he keeps it all together. And then I have a special thank you to Gina Amatruda. And here's why. I actually lost my, I couldn't find my um, ID badge that I need here to get in this building. I mean, it's the thing that actually allows you to buzz into the building. 
So I came in today and I actually had to get into the building. I had to get into a laundry hamper that was full of like all of Chef Plum's towels and, you know, chef outfits and stuff. I had to hide under the laundry while they wheeled me in there, wait till no one was looking, jump out of the laundry hamper, come upstairs, do this show. And I was thinking, I can't live like this. Like I could do it for one day. I could sneak in here in Chef Plum's laundry hamper for one day. But I can't live like this long term. And then Gene Amatruda came into the studio. He had found my ID badge somewhere, um, and he uh, now I have it. So thank you, special thank you. You saved you saved my I don't know my my peace of mind, my future existence. Okay, so uh, what are we going to do here? We are going to take more calls. We'll start with Carrie from Westbrook. Hi, Carrie, you're on the air. Hi. Listen, I'm hoping you can. Help me. I'm trying to remember a TV show, but now that I hear about your drug use, I'm I'm not hopeful. But there was a TV show um, back probably in the 80s or 90s, probably on PBS, and it was a roundtable discussion with a moderator who would uh, have a story of he would create this moral, ethical dilemma, and then he would go around to the panelists who were scholarly-type people, right. and they would have a d- discussion about whatever the dilemma was, and then he would change it throughout the discussion. And I'm wondering, do you remember that show at all? I, I do remember the show. It was conceived of by Fred Friendly. That that He is the person who created this idea. What, I'm not going to be able to come up with a name um, off the top of my head, but it was Fred Friendly came up with the idea, and then um, the interlocutor would change. But I remember Charles Ogletree, a Harvard Law professor, Charles Ogletree's being especially good at that. You know, of just moving around. It was a really interesting show. I th- I I would well, I would pin it to the s- around the 1980s or so. Yes, and I thought it would be a good concept for a show for you sometime. Yeah, it might be. It was. I mean, it was really, really well done. It was Fred Friendly, Charles Ogletree, and then I think um, uh, look, around the time I started taking a lot of LSD and Kool-Aid, um, an Orange <laughs> Dragon started hosting the show. And I really felt I kind of went downhill from there, you know, because, like, the panelists seemed afraid of the dragon. So, um, all right, so here we go. We're going to go to – we're going to go – got to go fast here because the – because we're running out of time. We have a lot of calls. Uh, here's Nita from Milford. Hi, Nina. Hi. Um, I'm just wondering, I've been reading the book called Free the Beaches. Yeah. And it's about Ned Cole. Yes, so. yes. Oh, I remember and those I'm marches. Yes. And I'm just wondering if you read it and what your thoughts were. And just, we clearly have not come very far in terms of accessibility in our beaches. Right. And what your thoughts were. Well, I think I think what you think, basically. I remember those marches by Ned Cole. I knew Ned Cole, too. Uh, I remember those marches. He would bring a lot of city kids uh, who were predominantly, if not 100% of them, were black kids down to the beach. And because, in fact, you know, once you get along the beach because of riparian rights and stuff like that, uh, as long as you're down by the waterline, you theoretically should be able to go wherever you want. It's just getting onto the beach that's the big trick. Uh, and my recollection is he would kind of march them down to the beach, down along the beach, kind of horizontally parallel with the beach uh, into some of these areas where people believed anyway that they had exclusive control of that area. 
And so they were not happy uh, with him doing that. But I think his point was the one that you're making, which is we have a lot of shoreline. Very little of it's available to the uh, general public, you know, as a, uh, it's available, tends to be more available as a consequence of owning specific pieces of property uh, that have beach rights. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it seems like there should be an awful lot more of the water that everybody could use. Um, I don't know what else there is to say about it. Yeah. Yeah, I just I was just wondering, and if someday you would explore that a little bit more. Okay, yes, um, uh, yeah. I'd be happy to. All right, so I mean, you know, in some ways, the the counter argument is Cape Cod, right? Cape Cod is you know the ocean side of Cape Cod is national seashore. It's like you know, I mean, sometimes it's a little hard to get a parking space. Like you can't. There are some parts of that national seashore where you literally can't park if you're not like a resident of Wellfleet or something. But anyway, the notion is. You know, that's there for everybody. Um, and that's certainly the case. You know, I, you go to St. John and the Virgin Islands, it's, you know, kind of it's essentially a national park. So um, that seems to me like a better system. It ought to belong to everybody. Um, all right. I mean, obviously, there's people with beach homes who don't want that. I get that. Uh, but I mean, just as a principle, you know, it makes more sense. Okay, let's t- do. Uh, we have uh, Eric from Hamden and then Jane from Glastonbury. Hi, Eric. Good afternoon. Uh, in the same uh, storyline as the sh- as the shoreline that the the lady from Milford just mentioned, my new motto for Connecticut. My proposal is: you can see the sound, but you can't hear the sea. Connecticut. <laughs> I don't think it's going to catch on. Um, yeah, unfortunately, but uh, I, I mean, it's deep in many ways. I mean, that we can't sit here the second sea in Connecticut is uh, has always been problematic for me. That's that's something that's really been bothering you. Um, yeah, it has. All right. Well, no, that's cool. I mean, you could start saying Connecticut, Connecticut. I believe that's uh, with our, our Native American uh, forebears said Connecticut. They didn't say Connecticut. Um, uh, all right. So here, uh, and actually we've gone so fast that we're down to our, fu- if you wanted to sneak in as a final caller, you could call 888-720-WNPR right now, 888-720-9677. Uh, and I believe that I could get you on the air. But right now we have Jane from Glastonbury. Also, this could be a very long conversation with Jane. That's the other possibility. Hi, Jane. Hi, Colin. Um, I'm calling because I was listening earlier when a woman called in who felt that what happened on January 6th wasn't really a big deal. Um, I know that's the prevailing opinion among a lot of registered Republicans, but I was um, curious about your own response. I thought it was ambiguous, and if what happened that day was no big deal. Would there be a committee of such dedicated uh, elected officials investing so much time and energy into over, you know, every stone to find out what happened? I think uh, I think you're minimizing the action of a violent mob. No, I, first of all, I want to just stop you and say I think you're mischaracterizing what I said. I regard this as a big deal, a very big deal. I've written columns to that effect. We've done shows to that effect. I mean, entire you know episodes of our own show to that effect. What I was what I was saying to her was I like I didn't want to dismiss her argument as though it were meaningless. So I wanted to give her some credit for having thought 
thought about it in a different way. It's always worth thinking about something in a different way. I would also say, you know, once again, I regard this as a big deal. As Jim from West Hartford said, nothing like this has ever happened before. It was a terrifying event. We were lucky to get out of it uh, with as little damage as we got out of it. And there was a lot of damage, particularly, as I, I said earlier, to people, to the people who were trying to trying to defend the Capitol. I mean, some of them have suffered just lifelong health and psychological consequences. But yeah, and the, and the other thing that's increasingly clear from the hearings is that there was more coordination than we were initially told or even led to suspect. So there was well, there's more coordination I, and more desire by, from Trump. So, no, I mean, I really do think you're mischaracterizing the way I handled that call. I wasn't going to, you I'm know. I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to mischaracterize anything. I just think that some clarification uh, might have helped. There are a lot of people who feel that we're on the brink of losing our democracy, there are historians who say that typically a democracy, the, the lifespan of a democracy is, what, 250 years, something like that. So I just think it's, it's really important uh, not to let that be minimized. I'm not saying that you were, uh, but I, it's frightening to me to hear uh, the opinion that, that I heard from that caller um, you know, uh, implying that really we need to, we need to kind of not worry about that because it very well could have been uh, a dress rehearsal for something, for something much worse. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what I said to her, just just to be clear about this, is I said that I didn't agree with her point, but I thought there was an element of truth there, which is that a lot of the people who wound up inside the Capitol, I think, were just sort of random followers. You know, they didn't come to Jan- to Washington on that day thinking they were going to invade in the, ca- the, the Capitol. Just a lot of other stuff happened, and they wound up just joining the crowd and, and raising hell. And she, you know, her point was if they really wanted to go in and kill everybody, they would have been more armed to the teeth, and they would have had a real plan to do that. And I didn't want to dismiss that argument out of hand because there is some merit to it. But, uh, but you know, the, there was also um, a group within that larger group that did have a plan, that came in in stack formation, that clearly had thought through how they were going to overwhelm uh, the area, that had in some cases been given tours by members of Congress on previous days so that right. they could even have a better sense of the layout of the place. So, no, it was a great big huge deal. I just, you oh, know, yeah, but... I think it's a courtesy, to, a courtesy to a caller who, you know, has thought this through. It has a different point of view. I will usually try to see if there's some merit somewhere in there. So yeah, I appreciate your courtesy to her. But at the same time, I, you know, I doubt I'm the only person listening who, you know, was a little bit taken aback by her viewpoint and just, you know, just was looking for some clarification from you, and I, I think I have it now. Yeah, and I think we need to get over being taken aback by people's viewpoints, too. People can look at a thing and see a, a different set of valences in it, and that doesn't, you know, it's not the end of the world or something like that. Uh, all right, so we have to stop there, and, and now we have lots of people who want to talk about this. So I'll tell you what, call up Robin Young. I think she's coming on next, unless you're listening to the podcast in which... There was never any possibility that your your phone call was going to be heard.
The number you have reached has been disconnected.